Thank you all. I absolutely love it when we sing that song right before we open God's Word because it's just an amazing reminder of, of what the point of a sermon is really supposed to be. Is, is no matter what we're looking at or what we're reading, is somehow to point us to, to really who God is, that, that we know Him and how we know Him in Christ. And, and that whatever we're looking at, we want His angle and His slant on, on the subject or the biblical passage or whatever it might be. So thank you, uh, Ensemble and uh, Worship Team, for leading us in that. Uh, Psalm 42 is your text this morning. We're going to continue uh, in this series talking about struggles. You've heard the phrase, the struggle is real. Uh, and that just means, hey, everybody deals with that. And that what we mean when we say, hey, the struggle is real. Like that's a real thing that everybody deals with. And so I uh, appreciate EJ preaching last Sunday. In a lot of ways, you know, what he talked about feeds right into to kind of what we're talking about today and, and the, the general idea of, of struggling with God. So there is this older... I mean, it's, it's not that old, but it's, it's been around. This older comic that uh, I don't know where it first appeared at, but uh, this, this guy is lying in bed, and he's burrowed under the covers. He's got the pillow on top of his head, and, and he's saying that he doesn't want to get up and, and go to church. And his wife is standing over him, and she's just prodding him and trying to get him to wake up. And, and she's saying, he's saying, I don't want to go to church. And she's saying, you have to go to church. And he says, well, I, I don't like church. The people there are mean and... They don't like me, and, and they're, they just say mean things to me, and I just don't like anything about it. And his wife says, you have to go to church. And he says, why? And she says, because you're the pastor. <laughs> I like that comic. <laughs> Not because I think that about my church, but, but I like what it illustrates, this idea that even pastors, who are, some people think are supposed to be more spiritual than everybody else, don't have off days. Don't have struggles because it's just not true. Even pastors have days where we don't feel like going to church. We don't feel like things are going well. We might get frustrated or sad or depressed. And you know, I remember the pastor that, that I became a Christian under. I never got that from him. He was always this happy, over-the-top happy kind of guy. And I don't, I don't think it was fake. But I think it was, a lot of it was really genuine with him. Uh, although I'm sure there were moments that he didn't allow some people to see when he struggled. But he was just goofy happy. You know anybody like that? Just happier than most people should be, honestly. And I just knew when I was a teenager there was never a time when he ever struggled or felt sad or anything. Because he, he never let anybody see that. Even though I look back and I know there were times that he struggled because that same church, I remember sitting the first Baptist business meeting I ever remember sitting in was, was a meeting discussing whether or not to grant him severance after a group of deacons basically forced him to leave. That's, that's the first Baptist business meeting I remember sitting in and deciding. And I know, even though I never had personal conversations with him through that, I know that had to be a difficult time. There's an older pastor that I connected with not long after I came to Eastwood. And uh, it was a pastor that was struggling at the church that he was at. And he kind of knew that, you know, the, the writing was on the wall and he was, he was on his way out. Some people weren't happy with him. And I, and I asked him, is there something that, you know, through the time you've served there that you've learned that you would want to pass on to, to younger pastors or pastors in general? And, and I thought he might say something about prayer, you know, one of the spiritual pastor answers. Or I thought he might say something about you know, remembering to stay in God's word when, when times are tough. 
And I'll never forget what he said, though, because it defied everything I thought that he might say. And he said, in all seriousness and with sincere conviction, he said, I've learned that it's okay to say that you might be depressed. He said, it's okay to get help if you are. That just kind of blew me out of the water. Maybe it sounds silly to you. Maybe you think, well, that's a no-brainer. But for some of us, admitting something like that might be seen as a tendency to to think that we are less spiritual than we should be. Uh, Or maybe that we don't have enough faith. Or maybe we're not close enough to God. I've, I've shared with you that I have a bipolar mother. And, man, I've seen her do some crazy things. And when she's not regulated on her medicine, I've just seen her do crazy things. And then a month later, be a completely, totally different, rational person that I've had a conversation with. And, you know, if you would have told me a month ago that she would be this person, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have seen it coming. And so I've seen firsthand that sometimes the way that we feel is, is just that. It's not something that we made happen. It's not something that happened because we didn't read our Bible enough. It's not something that happened because we didn't go to church. It's just something that happened in us. And, and, and there was no control that we had over it. And I've seen that even those impulses that come from those feelings sometimes are things that we don't have control over. But I get the sense, and, and this is for me personally, when I look back at my pastor, the first pastor I had as a Christian, and, and think about him, there still is this tendency to, to, to me to look at him and say, well, I don't look happy all the time like him, so there's got to be something wrong with me. And I think that tendency might be in all of us to a degree. Because there's kind of a stigma, isn't there, to, to dealing with our feelings and talking about, you know, if, if we feel like we're, we're not feeling or, or looking or expressing ourselves like we should, if we can't overcome our feelings in a certain way, we might feel like we're incompetent. And I think when we t- that, that sort of stigma is taken to its... To the least, you know, the, the, the least of it might result in people seeing us or, or us seeing ourselves as, as not faithful enough, as not Christian enough. And, and I guess taken to the worst extreme, it might involve us seeing ourselves as not, not being biblical or not being pleasing to God because we experience a certain emotion or, or feel a certain way. There was, uh, well, I guess there's always been conflict in Baptist life, but... There was a conflict in the 70s and 80s in the Baptist life, and Baptist, you know, national Baptist life, you know, about the Bible. And uh, I could bore you with all the details, but you know, the, the implications of that kind of rang through our seminaries. And uh, some people would say that the, the things that happened to that were all good, and some people would say they're all bad. And realists like, like me would say, well, there's been good and bad that came from it. And, and one of the, the, the bad things, I think, that came from it is that. And in Southern Baptist seminaries prior to that time, there was a sociology department. And, and that sociology department was there because Christians realized, or the leaders of those seminaries realized that the Bible is a great book of, of, that tells us how to live in our faith, but it's not a textbook for everything. And so those departments would combine biblical principles with methods in sociology and concepts in psychology and, and helping people to... To, to deal with people who were dealing with emotions and, and psychological problems in, in ministry and in churches and things like that. And then prior, after this conflict, there was a decision handed down to, to totally do away with those departments and those seminaries in favor of what's called biblical counseling. That sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? It's, it's biblical, biblical counseling. But the problem is, Just like if you took the Bible and said, I'm going to use the Bible as a finance manual. 
Well, there are some biblical principles you can pull out about finance, such as tithing and saving. But, but the Bible is not going to tell you how to invest in today's stock market, right? It was written before that, so it's, that's not what it's for. And so what, what you had is these seminaries trying to tell people that you only deal with people struggling with psychological and social issues just, just based on the Bible. But the Bible is not a textbook to do that. Now, I want to be fair because, because that was a, that's one extreme. But it's a response to another extreme in our society that says the most important thing is what you feel. You've heard the phrase, I guess it started back with, with hippies maybe, if it feels good, do it. That's, that's sort of the idea. What's most important is what you feel, not anything that anybody else might say, not anything that you think. It's just how you feel. And, and that idea in some ways has permeated our society. And it's evident when, when you're watching a movie or reading a book and someone is trying to make a very difficult decision and someone will say to them, well, just follow your heart. What does that mean? Well, just do what you feel like, basically, is what that means. Do what you feel like is right inside. And maybe that's correct, right? But also, as believers, we know maybe that's not correct if our heart is not right with God. And so we have these two extremes. And, and the Bible is not a textbook for counseling. But the Bible does provide us with, with examples of people who struggle with extreme feelings and emotions. And, and no, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what to do in, in the realm of psychology and sociology and dealing with those things. But it does show us that you can be a believer and you can be connected to God and you can, you can feel some pretty cruddy things and still be faithful to God. Psalm 42, I think, is a great example of that. That's our text this morning. If you haven't turned there, I invite you to do that. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Why people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All the waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs His love, at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. That's an understatement, isn't it, to say that the psalmist does not feel right when you read that. He doesn't feel good at all. That's, the, I think, probably the biggest thing you draw from that. And from him, we understand that when you don't feel right, first thing is it, it may not have anything to do with you. It may not have anything to do with what you did, anything that what you didn't do. It may not be anything at all to do with you. It just might be where you're at. Psalm 42 is categorized as a psalm of lament. 
And what is he lamenting? He's lamenting the fact that he can't physically be in the Old Testament where they worshipped in the temple. And, and literally for him, probably because he was exiled to, to a foreign place, he can't be in that place where he believes God is most intimately present. And so he's physically, in his understanding, he's physically separated from God. Now I want to say, if you, if you are most familiar with this psalm, from the little song, have you heard the song, As the Deer? We've heard that song. Good, a good number of us. Okay, take that song. It's a good song to sing, but it doesn't communicate what this psalm is about at all. You, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. That's such a sweet little sentiment, isn't it? You alone are my heart's desire. I mean, that just makes you want to like have warm, fuzzy feelings inside. But the psalm is not about warm, fuzzy feelings. Have you ever seen an animal pant? As the deer pants for water, my soul longs after you. That's, that's an expression of desperation, not of this sweet little sentiment of, I just want to be close to God, which is what as the deer is about. And that's a good expression, but it has nothing to do with this psalm, okay? All right, that's a little, that's a different road. If you knew somebody struggling in this way, saying, man, I'm, I'm just dying. You know, I feel separated from God and my soul is just dry. Would you say to that person, well, it's probably because you're not praying enough. It's probably because you're not reading your Bible enough. Would you quote Psalm 37, 4? Well, you should delight in your, yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Probably not, huh? Probably not, because you know, you know that, that the psalm, the Bible, is not necessarily, this psalm specifically, a, a blueprint of you do this stuff and you get this feeling. And we know that these moments come regardless of how spiritual and how faithful we are. And we hear the psalmist saying in, in verse 4, I, I remember not only being in the temple where God was, but I remember leading the procession to the temple. Those of you who... Lead in church, take the offering and stand by the doors and sing. I, I, I was one of those people, you know, I was, I was in a leadership position is what he's saying. And, and even me, even someone as spiritual as that person is, is suffering this right now. And it can happen to all of us. It happens. It does happen to all of us. So what do we do? Well, we remember God. We remember who he is, as the psalmist is, in spite of our feelings. Remembering, and this is the thing you remember, that God provides encouragement when we remember those moments that are great with Him. He got, remembering God provides us encouragement, but it may not necessarily provide us relief. It may not necessarily result in us feeling like we want to feel. I mentioned that Psalm 42 is a psalm of lament. And, and, and interspersed in these verses of lament, of this sadness, are moments of hope, right? You see a lament, lament, then you see another verse that says, but... This is my hope. And, and, and that first part comes, the first hope comes in verse 5 where he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And, and each one of these verses of hope, it's like the psalmist is talking to himself. You've heard that phrase, self-talk. You know, you're trying to get yourself pumped up. It's like he's saying to himself, Look, self, this is who I know God to be. 
It reminds me of a chemistry teacher I had. His name was Mr. Fremont. And he would say, when we would ask tons of questions about the problem over and over and over, uh, over a worksheet or something that he'd given us, he'd finally say, look, when it comes to the test, you're not going to be able to come and talk to me. You're going to have to talk to yourself. You're going to have to say, self, what did Mr. Fremont tell me about this problem? He would always say that. Self, what do I remember looking at on my review sheet about this situation? That's what you're going to have to do. And I think that's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, this is who I know God is, even in spite of the way that I'm experiencing things. And no, that doesn't make him feel better. That doesn't provide relief, but it provides him a hope. And even in the midst, as he says in verse 7, I feel like, I feel like a waterfall's on top of me, he says. God has just allowed all this stuff to, to sweep over me. He says, I have this hope because I know who God is, even if I don't know why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. And that's the next thing. So when you don't feel right, you may never know why. That's, that's just that's the question that we tend to ask. And the psalmist even asks it too. In, in verses 9 and 10, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? My bones suffer mortal agony. Literally, that could mean... My, my, that, and, and, and it literally could mean there's murder in my bones. That's what he's saying. It physically... There's this spiritual sense that's so hard that it's almost a physical sense. And he talks about the enemy. The enemies do this. The foes do this. And I know he's probably talking about real people, but, but we have a similar enemy, don't we, in a sense. The enemy, the same enemy that convinced Adam and Eve that God really didn't have their best interest at heart is that same enemy that convinces us that God doesn't love us or he's not real because you know, we face the loss of a loved one. Or because we, we struggle with cancer continuously. Or because we had a bad experience in church. How do we keep from being convinced by the enemy that our experience, what we're feeling, does not reflect on who God is? I think the only thing we can do is, is we let God be God in the midst of whatever it might be. When you don't feel right, when you feel sad, when you feel sick, when you feel depressed... Your faith isn't helped by ignoring those things, but your faith is strengthened by owning them and saying, this is all that I'm facing, and God, you have to be God in the midst of this, because, because I can't. Psalm 42 does end on a note of hope, doesn't it? The psalmist is talking to himself again, just like he did in verse 5, and, and he says, he, he's reminding himself, you know, this is who God is. But when it ends, when the psalm ends, there's not any resolution. He doesn't say, well, I feel better now. Don't you hate it when you're watching a movie? You go watch a movie about a, I don't know, maybe it's a love story. And, and you wonder throughout the whole movie if the two people are going to get together. Or if, if you like murder mysteries, you know, you get all the clues and you get to where you think you figured out who it is. And then it gets to the end or uh, whatever it might be. And then it gets to the end and it doesn't resolve. It leaves a cliffhanger or there's going to be a sequel. I mean, I don't know if you like that. I hate that. When I watch a movie or I read a book, I want it all to be tied up at the end together nicely. You say, well, Matt, that's not real life. I know that's not real life. That's why I watch movies. That's why I read books. I'm trying to escape real life. Some of you maybe are opposite than that, but I, you know, I don't like, you know, I need a break from reality. That's why I watch movies that, that, that have you know, nice little endings. Because I know that in real life, 
A lot of the stuff we deal with has no resolution. And just because I pray or just because I ask God to do something or just because I go to church, that doesn't necessarily mean that whatever it might be, it's just going to resolve itself real nice and neatly. So what did the psalmist expect? I think we get a picture of that when you get to the end in verse 11. He echoes what he says in verse 5. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And in most psalms, this would be the time where he gives the resolution. He'd already asked this question once. So now you're hoping, okay, now it's over. He's going to tell us. He's going to tell us why you know, he's sad and upset and what God's going to do about it. But he doesn't. He just echoes the same thing. Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him. Last week, EJ talked about from the book of Job how God invites us into a conversation in our suffering, how when we're, we're facing that, God might not tell us why, but he, he does desire that give and take from us. That's, that's who God is. And I think that's what Psalm 42 is a model of, of that kind of conversation, of us saying, God, this is everything that I'm feeling and everything that I'm going through, and I, and, and I don't know why, but, but I need you to be God in the middle of it. And, and me being faithful to you, God, doesn't hinge, doesn't hinge on a quick answer. It doesn't hinge on a resolution. And it understands that life is not a movie. That's tough, though. It's tough for us to do that. It's tough to be in that situation. So this is how I think about it. Any of you own a, a pocket New Testament? Do you remember those? A real small Bible. And it's called that because it fits in your pocket. And it's just the New Testament. And uh, sometimes they're green. Sometimes they're orange. And, uh, you know, the point behind those is to make, you know, the, the Bible so small that you can carry it with you. And they've narrowed it down to the New Testament because that's the most, as far as being a Christian goes, understanding the hope in Christ, it's, it's all right there. You can hand it to someone if they're not a Christian, and it's, it's all right there. But what else do they include other than the New Testament? Psalms, sometimes Proverbs. Why do they, of all the, the Old Testament books, that they could say, well, we don't have room for a lot of stuff, uh, but we're going to include Psalms in there. Why would they pick that? I think it's because it shows real life. I think it's because it shows that, uh, you know, it keeps us from thinking. And when we read the gospel, when we read about Christ, it keeps us from thinking that, well, hey, if I accept Christ, everything's going to go great. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us in reality. It keeps us from despairing when we don't have those grand visions like, like, uh, like Peter had or like Paul had. When, when things don't go like the central characters in the New Testament who are pretty, you know, few and far between. You know, we're not supposed to have lives like them. Most likely we're going to have lives like the people in the Psalms. This past week, a, a guy, his name is Eugene Peterson, passed away. And he's a writer who, who's he's most famous for, for writing the message translation. Really, it's a paraphrase of the Bible. But he's written so many books and, and so many. Some of them are scholarly and some of them are, are devotional. He was 85 when he finally died. And uh, my favorite of everything that he's written is called as a memoir that he wrote about his life as a pastor where he served for over 20 years at this church that he planted, he started. And uh, as he talks about that, there's a section in his memoir that talks about this really dry time that he went through as a pastor. And he calls it the Badlands. Anybody know what Badlands are? Some of you that yeah, Dwayne does because he hikes. It's just, it's just really dry, uh, eroded Terrain And a lot of it is in uh, national parks, you know, where there's it's very steep. And it's really pretty to look at. If you look at it from an aerial view, it's really pretty, you know, kind of like the desert. But it's nothing. Like there's nothing that can grow there. It's not fruitful. 
And, and if you're hiking and you're stuck out there and you don't have a way to get out of it, it's not fun to walk through. So how many of you would like to be a part of a church whose pastor said, man, pastor and y'all is like they're walking through the badlands. And that's what he said. He, he planted this church and it was very exciting for a while, but then there was just this time where it hit and it was like, it was kind of dull. It was mundane and, and not a lot was happening. And the amazing thing is that was like six years into it. And he stuck it out for 20 plus years. And I think maybe being the psalm scholar that, that he was is that he, he got that, hey, what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing isn't necessarily an indication of God being happy with me here or sad with me here or wanting me to do this or that. He understood that he could experience that and still be faithful to God. Feelings don't have to dictate your faith. And on the other hand, dealing with your feelings doesn't mean that you lack faith. I have this very vivid memory, one of the biggest memories I have around losing my grandmother. When I just, I just found out that she died. And, and, and I'm walking out, and this guy that was a Christian and a friend of our family comes up to me, and he gives me this big hug, and he whispers into my ear, Be strong, Matt. And he meant to be encouraging. But I remember hearing that and thinking, There's something terribly wrong with that advice. And, and at the age of, of, of 11 or 12, I couldn't really articulate what that might be. But looking back, I know what it was. It was the fact that I wasn't strong. It was the fact that someone that I depended on for almost everything in my life was being taken away from me. And, and I couldn't be strong. And what I needed was a faith in someone that was strong to get me through that point in my life. But having that kind of faith takes honesty. It takes expressing and dealing with some of the strongest pain and emotions that we, that we go through and not hiding them and not thinking, I'm, gonna be, I'm, I'm okay on my own. It's like being like the psalmist and saying, well, self, why are you downcast? Why are you sad? Well, I don't know, but, but I'm going to put my hope and put my faith in God because I know who He is. And we're not very good at doing that sometimes. And even as a church, as a whole, you'd think, well, as a group, we might be better at that, but we're often not. Do you remember... Several years ago when, when the fertilizer plant exploded in West, and that went off. And, and I remember pictures of the First Baptist Church meeting out in a field. And, and Pastor John Crowder was interviewed, and he said there were, there were more people meeting in that field after that explosion when there was no church building and no electricity and, and, and nothing, no pews to sit in. And then there were the, was the Sunday before when, when everything was going well. And it's because all of a sudden people recognize as a whole, hey, we need something together. I mean, they, they couldn't hide from it. It was obvious, right? And while we'd never wish a, a tragedy upon any of us, on any of our churches, maybe the best thing that could happen to us is if we, we stopped hiding the fact that we not only need God, but we need one another. Michelle and I attended a church for a while in Waco that, that they had this statement they read when people became a part of the church. They would, they would say the first part of the statement was, we pledge to be the kingdom of God to you in this place. And, and, and so what that was saying is that, you know, outside of this place, there's no telling what you're going to experience. Outside our walls, you're going to experience the world because it's the kingdom of the world. But when you're here, we pledge to be what God says we should be to one another when you're here, when you're in our midst. Which means that when you don't feel right, church should be the best place to be. It means that when, when something's wrong, whether it's just sadness or clinical depression, that that the best people to, to go to should be church people. It means when someone's depressed, we allow them not only the freedom to feel that way, but we encourage them to deal with it and even to seek professional help if they need to. 
Today, if you'd say, I, I feel fine. I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. I promise you, there's someone that you know, maybe even sitting in the pew with you that's not. And, and maybe they just need you to say, hey, how, how's it going? How are things? How, how's your, your soul, so to speak? And if, and if you say, I, I, things are not going well. Things are not right with me. Then what better place than church? What better friends to have and the people in this room to, to go to and say, hey, I'm going through a tough time and I don't have any answers and you might not either, but just, just have faith with me in the Lord. This morning, that's, that's, that's the community that we have and, and, and what better way than to celebrate the Lord's Supper to say, you know, in, in, in an act of sacrifice, we have strength. In the act of what Christ gave, we come together and are strong. And we're going to do that in just a few moments, but First, we're going to have our hymn of response, and so I invite you to pray with me. Lord God, if, as we come to this time together as believers, uh, we just pray that uh, you'd remind us that, that by ourselves, not only are we weak, but by ourselves, we, we can't be what you want us to be. Lord, we thank you that whether things are going great or things are going bad, that we have your spirit. And, and God, sometimes that's... We miss out on that. That's hidden from us. We forget that and we don't feel it. And so I pray for those that need a reminder of that, that they would be reminded of that during this time. We pray you'd use this, this, just this moment before we celebrate the Lord's Supper to speak to our hearts and help us to prepare our hearts as we recognize who you are to us and we recognize who we are to you as the church. We pray in Jesus.